everything turns on these words. And so it's, it's interesting, you know, you watch these different states try to come up with some laws. And I've been involved in helping to advise some other states on what language to use and not use, you know, on behalf of some clients that are selling these psychoactive products and, you know, whether it's psychoactive or intoxicating, you know, there's all these different words matter. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to a new episode of the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And y'all, today's episode is Juicy with a capital J. So if you are in Texas cannabis, this explicitly will apply to you and is very timely considering the recent Texas Supreme Court update in regards to smokable hemp. But for everyone else, I hope this sheds some light into what is going on in my home state in terms of cannabis legalization, and also how one of our leading legal professionals and advocates is rolling up her sleeves and getting in on the fight. I've always intended for this podcast to highlight these different stories and scenarios because I believe we're a stronger industry when we learn from each other. So if anything, I hope learning about what is going on in Texas cannabis can inform and empower you in your own city or state to continue to help improve cannabis law and hopefully learn from our triumphs and mistakes. Now, I recorded this last week, just a few days before the Texas Supreme Court made their final decision on the smokable hemp ban. That's been going on in Texas since 2019. So there is some speculation in today's episode on how things were going to turn out in regards to that case. But then the case got updated. So I just want to bring you up to speed and kind of set the tone for what is about to unpack, both in this episode and in Texas Cannabis. This is a longer episode, but again, I think it was necessary to cover everything that was candidly shared and highlight a bit how politics and the law actually work in regards to cannabis policy. Today, I am joined by Lisa Pittman, a lawyer operating here in Austin and Texas and someone I have been fortunate to work with in multiple capacities. Most notably, we both sit together on the executive board of the Texas Hemp Coalition, which is our state's leading advocacy nonprofit that really kicks into gear to help inform the business entities operating in our state, as well as inform the policy side through education and relationship building with key political figures and regulators who represent and decide on hemp and cannabis regulation and policy in the state. I cannot speak more highly of Lisa. She knows her stuff and is someone I constantly turn to to help interpret what the hell the law is saying. And as marketers, we, of course, have to know what the law is saying so we can market and operate business legally. Well, as legal or as risky, we're willing to push the boundaries of the law. So I know I've talked about the smokable hemp ban before, but specifically want to outline the situation and the impact it has on business in our state. 
hemp was federally legalized in 2018, and Texas would soon follow with legalization in the state in 2019. The way the Texas hemp bill was outlined falls very in line with the federal farm bill, which legalized hemp with less than 0.3% Delta 9 THC on a dry weight basis. The farm bill opened the floodgates for entrepreneurs to produce goods containing CBD, of course. And one of the most popular methods of consumption is smokables. It's bioavailable, it's very convenient, and it's very popular. When you look at data trends showing what are still the top categories for consumption, smokables is up there. So naturally, from a marijuana to hemp perspective, you're going to see that carry over. So, of course, Texans wanted to smoke their hemp. But Texas's bill directed the state's Health and Human Services Commissioner, which is our regulating body, and we call them DSHS, D-S-H-S, to adopt a rule effective August 2020 stating that manufacturing, processing, distribution, or retail sale of consumable hemp products for smoking is prohibited. As a result, a lot of businesses, myself included, scrambled to change labeling. We had to update our website. We had to say this is not intended for smoking. It was a whole chaos to do. And out of that, a couple of companies ended up suing the state, which put an injunction in place allowing us to sell, et cetera, smokable, consumable hemp products. And so there's been a lot of back and forth. And the state's whole shtick with this is that they're, of course, apprehensive to full-on legalizing marijuana. And what they really weren't expecting when they legalized hemp was for people to begin smoking it, which I get can be confusing despite the THC percentage variance because hemp and marijuana could be easily mistaken for each other because they have a very similar profile and smell. So the understanding is that, yes, it is a challenge for law enforcement, which is why the state directed the regulation of smokable products. So anyways, it ended up getting kicked to the Supreme Court back in March of 2022. And honestly, I was expecting them to keep delaying things till next year's legislative session. But they came back to us on June 24th and officially updated that it is legal to retail sell and, of course, for consumers to possess and purchase, but it is illegal to manufacture and process. So to me, that's a huge blow because it takes the economic impact of manufacturers and processors out of the state and essentially forces retailers to supply smokables from out of the state. I don't think this is over yet. And also there are a lot of issues of regulatory enforcement still up in the air. But honestly, this is why we are here sitting down with Lisa to address and understand the path that not only Texas, but states in general navigating cannabis laws have to go through and how words, legislation, etc. will all play a role in what is or isn't legal. Final note, even though they made this update, like I just shared, I still believe there will be further movement taking place in our 2023 legislative session happening next year, in addition to dealing with Delta 8, other psychotropic cannabinoids like hemp drive Delta 9, and a myriad of other issues that are getting in the way of legalizing marijuana in Texas and that we have yet to address as a state. So, Certainly more to come, and I know I'll be keeping an eye out as to how things continue to transpire and do my best to provide y'all updates because we truthfully are all in this together. I hope you're strapped in for a good informative episode, so without further ado, let's get right to it. Please join me by lighting one up, and let's welcome Lisa to the show. 
My name is Lisa Pittman, and I'm an attorney in Austin, Texas. I have been an attorney for over 21 years. My background's in commercial business litigation. And I first got into this when I read the Senate testimony of mothers in support of the Texas Compassionate Use Act in 2015. And I was reading about what their lives were like, what their children's lives were like, the treatment choices they were having to make, possibly having to leave the state, their families, communities, churches, schools to seek treatment for their child, or maybe they didn't have the means to do so. And so that really lit the fire under me to do something. And part of the reason why is I had a couple of reasons that I empathized with these mothers. One is uh, when I was a teenager, I'm from Houston. I volunteered at Texas Children's Hospital for children with terminally ill diseases. And I'm also an artist, so I wanted to be an art therapist for them. But when I got to the statistics portion of the psych major, I didn't think I could pass it. I'm the first in my family to go to college. I didn't know you could just get a tutor, even though that existed. So I slid over into English and one thing led to another to, to go to law school. I thought I could still accomplish some things I wanted to accomplish as a businesswoman. I didn't really want to be a lawyer, but you know, some other things happened in my life that put me on that hamster wheel that, that I needed to do. But I got a lot of great, great experience. I worked at various firms because I always had a quest for challenges and new practice areas and, and new things, which is kind of contradictory to the way most lawyers are because there's this traditional model that you go to this law firm after law school and you're there for eight years and you're a partner and and that's where you live. <laughs> and so people would really raise an eyebrow that I would be bopping around to these different places every few years. It kind of turned out to be good in 2009 with the recession when all the lawyers with their cush jobs were laid off and then they didn't know what to do. But I had already been pretty nimble. And as I mentioned, loving challenges, cannabis in Texas, <laughs> to legalize that is, is quite a challenge. And anyway, the other reason that I was interested or that this motivated me was my own daughter has epilepsy. And so, you know, she was less than a year old and I took her to Texas Children's and Memorial Hermann. And I said, give me the head of the department. And I got them. And one of them said, well, I got com completely contradictory treatment plans from them. So one of them said, you know, she wanted to medicate her up to the gills and said, I'm sorry, you're not going to have the same child after this because of the devastating effects that these drugs have on the development of the brain and the organs. And the other one said, well, we could just closely monitor this and see if it's a juvenile form. And she's going to be 17 in a month. And she was cleared last year by her neurologist. So that's what it was. It was juvenile. But, but that was very scary for me, you know, at 31, making a, a gamble on, you know, what treatment choice to make. And uh, that experience just showed me that these doctors, that, you know, head of the department, master of their trade, were just guessing at what her condition was and guessing about how to treat it. So why not have a natural plant that no one has overdosed on with very few side effects that has been shown to have miraculous results be another tool in that toolbox to use? And so I wanted to find out also what else can cannabis do besides help with epilepsy? So in January 2015 or 16, 
I went to Denver for a Women Grow conference, which was life-changing. It was kind of like a series of TED Talks all day long. It was very energizing. It was 1,800 women from across the country were there. So coming from Texas, you know, we're, you know, we're so sequestered from this. You know, there's no way for us to know that this was actually already a movement sweeping the country, cannabis as medicine. And it was also already an industry. So in addition to these medical motivations, I also, you know, learned through my hard work at a lot of different law firms that there's no amount of excellence and sacrifice that's going to get you past that little boys club. You know, I've, I've been the darling top biller at a couple law firms, but that's it. You're still subservient as a woman. And so I, I thought, huh, here's an industry that is not yet owned and buttoned up at the top by old white men. Maybe I can become an early expert and authority as a woman on this. And so that, that was another motivation to get into it. And so while I was out there, I met with some attorneys that wanted to get a footprint in Texas. So I started working with them originally, and I still want to do this. I wanted to create a wellness center for women where they could come consult about all kinds of plant-based therapies, nutrition, counseling, preventative measures, etc. Also kind of a futuristic dispensary idea tailored just for women with sort of a medical bent, you know. So, but anyway, I had to start making money. <laughs> so I started working with these lawyers and my first major project was advising LSU on the rollout of Louisiana's medical program, which is unique in the country because they gave it to the two research universities, LSU and Southern, to do the growing extraction and distribution to each of the parishes. So I had to learn A to Z, everything about the cannabis trade, practically speaking, legally speaking, you know, taking them to all kinds of different grow facilities and extraction facilities in Colorado so that they could spec out their equipment, learn what they wanted to do. And they didn't want to jeopardize their federal funding or get sued. So they subcontracted out the grow and they got to create that application and scorecard. And from there, I went on to work in these competitive medical marijuana applications in surrounding states, also working in Texas, of course. And at the end of 2017 session, we didn't get any movement in the cannabis laws. But I wanted to keep doing what I was doing and keep that momentum up. So I moved to Colorado, <laughs> brought my kids with me and, you know, went on this adventure. It's much like the adventures I took surfing around different law firms. You know, I was an experiential person before that was the term, you know. So I wanted to go immerse myself out there in a state where it's legal, learn what the issues are and how to solve them, to meet the kingpins while they were still touchable. Back, you know, at that time, Colorado was king of marijuana. And also, you know, expand my network, you know, things like brokers, insurance, all these, you know, banking, all these different tricky issues. And then bring that back to Texas to represent Texans and Southerners. I also want, you know, presiding over the South. And so in 2019, I was flying back and forth between Denver and Austin to get our hemp law passed. And so then that summer, you know, we, we got it done and that brought me back home to Texas. And so you know, the rest is kind of history. I, I worked with a couple of firms and one of them being with Andrea Steele. And, you know, we worked together for a year and 
And then I joined this California firm and, you know, I tried to represent them across the country in Texas, kind of in a pill battle in Texas, you know, California firm. But, you know, anyway, I decided on April 1st that I could better serve my clients, especially in the way that I want to do it by starting my own firm. And all my, fr- my friends, you know, encouraged me to do that. And you know, they said, Lisa, you don't like to follow other people's rules anyway. You are independent. You, you know, it's time for you to just do this yourself. So that's been really exciting and invigorating. I mean, there's a part portion of it that's scary, but it's been great. And I, I really look forward to what's to come. So there's a very long-winded <laughs> answer to your question about how I got into this. No, that was super helpful and informative. And and for listeners, you know, to understand, yes, Lisa's in Austin. I'm in Austin. We work very closely as much as I can to support the advancement of cannabis policy here in our state and just having a cannabis community to your point of having experience like women grow in Colorado and seeing this excitement. You know, we haven't really had that yet in Texas. It's definitely been building and developing and growing thanks to individuals like ourselves. Lisa and I both sit on the Texas Hemp Coalition one of the leading advocacy and nonprofits here in the state. So I'm very appreciative for all the work that you have done to help push Texas into the direction of adopting better cannabis policy. And so I want to kind of, you know, turn the the dial a little bit towards you're very influential. I mean, aside from just what you've done here in our state, just influential and kind of pioneering and observing what could be done from a cannabis legal profession. And so I would love to get a little bit better understanding from you of what it was like kind of navigating through some of the, I guess, early days and like applying your expertise from a legal profession into cannabis. And then especially with that lens on Texas, like what does that mean to be a legal profession, legal professional in cannabis and specifically as a Texan, like what are people kind of navigating and facing and what are the kind of things that you cover as a lawyer? Yeah, the the early days was interesting. So I have a a big network on LinkedIn already had done that back in the day in my traditional law, law practice. And so originally I would put out some articles about cannabis research, cannabis this and that. And there were folks that would disconnect with me. <laughs> and I saw the U.S. attorney for Texas looking at my profile here and there. And, you know, that was a little uh, scary. <laughs> but at the same time, I was really burnt out on what I was doing. And I frankly didn't care whether I lost my license or not, because I wanted to do this new venture, Well Women Groups was going to call it. And You know, like the days of Lincoln, you know, when lawyers stood up and used their position to change laws for the better. And so I I wanted to, you know, focus on that. And um, so it was kind of interesting, the LinkedIn stuff, because eventually I would get, you know, a few likes and then started to get a lot of likes, you know, as cannabis becomes accepted more throughout the country, the role the media has played and, and all of that. And now when I post something, I'll get five or 6,000 views, 100 likes, you know. So, so it's, been, it's been an interesting evolution there in that regard. And I analogize it to, to, to like being a musician, you know, where you start out at open mic night and no one's there. And you just have to keep believing in your work and keep putting it out there. And eventually you might get a couple of fans 
LinkedIn eventually might get a cult following. And then, you know, and all and through all of this, through years and years and years of little success, you have to keep believing in what you're doing, keep putting it out there. And eventually maybe you'll become a superstar, which <laughs> was my aim. And as I mentioned, because I've litigated so many different subject matters, now I know a lot about a lot of things, which is important, especially in the cannabis industry, because most all of these businesses are startups, most always in the beginning. It's, you know, it's not with the big fancy and executives and investors. It's the, the actual person that came up with the business and they haven't run a business before, or maybe it was a side hustle that turned into something great. So I feel like I fall into more than just the legal services bucket because I help to get bank accounts and insurance and all those tricky things to navigate and pulling on my work in Colorado with all the important connections that I made there, all of the things that I learned about reputable sources and reputable people, and of course, the criminal element that is not, (laughs) and to help my clients navigate through all of this. And of course, the tricky conflict between federal and state law. And then even within state law in Texas, you know, we've got a couple of laws that are hung up in injunctions and tied up in the courts. And so it's, it's, it's always tenuous, you know, even if you're in a safely legal state like Colorado, there is so much risk mitigation that you have to do. You always have to be on your toes. The laws are constantly changing and evolving. And it's really cool that we get to be a part of the formation of new laws because regular legal practice is looking backwards for the past 200 years. And okay, what was decided here? That's the precedent. That's what should be decided here. We don't have any guidance here. You know, it's pure legal analysis to divine how this regulation is going to be interpreted by a judge in the future or a contract, you know, what things need to be in that contract to help me get a case against you dismissed. And so my litigation work, which was mostly over broken contracts and, you know, partnership disputes, et cetera, now informs me on what I build into contracts and terms and conditions and things like that. You know, I've litigated product liability, insurance, workers' comp, employment, yeah, you know, everything. So all, all these things help. So that's, that's one thing, you know, and what was the next part of your question? Well, I just, I appreciated your perspective to highlighting the, I guess, traditional view of being a lawyer where there is a lot of reflecting back on previous cases or instances that have been brought to court and how our industry is so new. It's like you have cannabis at a federal level is so immature still, obviously not federally legalized. And then you have that filter of Texas's, you know, situation layered into it where we're really truly pioneering something. And so at least that's what I felt, you know, for sure, launching our business here in the state. I remember kind of launching and thinking, okay, well, what do I say? And how do I say it? And what's legal for me to say? And I don't want to get in trouble. And this was before Texas, because there was federal legalization. So we were able to open up a hemp business under the federal law, but Texas didn't quite legalize 
immediately right then. It took some months. So there was a gap where we were like, okay, this is federally legal, but this isn't state legal. And certainly because Texas wasn't state legal, we didn't have the introduction of flour. I remember when Texas legalized hemp and we started selling flour. I was like, oh my God, the cops can't tell the difference. This smells like marijuana. Is this legal for me to be doing? How do I navigate this? And so it, it just it, all of us in this state and in really any state navigating cannabis, but certainly there are legacy states like California and Colorado who have had a couple of years under their belts to navigate it. We're literally the ones for right and wrong, you know, going through the motions and the actions to define and redefine some of these laws. So I just wanted to kind of punctuate that point that I appreciated you highlighting. It's it's so cool to hear your background because obviously I know you and I get to work with you in different capacities, but to get to kind of see it through your lens of, okay, this is like where I came from. This is why this is important to me. And I think we share the similar, you know, passion for we are Texans and we want to see our state have better cannabis policy. How can we contribute to that? And how can we be involved? I think that's really important because there is a lot of sentiment of like, oh, if your state's politics aren't what you like, you know, go play in another state. And I think you've seen a lot of Texans, unfortunately, go to states like Oklahoma or New Mexico to go play in the legal cannabis markets. And no disrespect to anybody who wants to go to Colorado or go play anywhere else. But for me, it's always, okay, what can we do to actually impact our state and make a, def- a difference and make a dent? And one thing I wanted to kind of highlight and get your thoughts on you just opened your own firm, like you mentioned. You do so much in terms of advocacy. Like you are very public. You speak a lot. You contribute to a lot of articles, both here in the state as well as national publications. Like you're a very vocal person <laughs> in the industry that I would say from a legal profession. And I just want to understand, you know, how do you approach, I guess because this is a marketing podcast, I'll call it, you know, marketing, but like how do you approach building your brand and business in this industry where, again, I feel like everything we do jokingly aside is like, this is not legal advice. You know, like it's so hard to know what is right or wrong. Like you were sharing, a lot of it is your interpretation as a lawyer. So what makes you kind of feel confident to, and you kind of shared it a little bit too. You're like, if if this is what I go down for, like I go down (laughs) with the shit. But Other than that, you know, what is your motivation? How do you kind of navigate bringing yourself to opportunities to continue to champion Texas, to continue to champion Texas businesses, to champion cannabis and and build this firm that you've built to be one of the leading legal firms in Texas representing this industry that we love? Oh, thank you. To validate your point, I mean, Texas is a different animal and it is much harder to get started doing what we're doing here than, for instance you know, in Colorado and such, there are a lot of attorneys that legalization just fell in their lap. You know, maybe even in law school, they they didn't need to fight for legalization. They weren't going out on a limb or a risk. And also they, because it happened to them so young, they don't have like that long classical hardcore background training, you know, like I did and in regular law, which then you can apply to these cannabis challenges. So That's kind of one thing, you know, standing up in a super prohibitionist state and being willing to be public about it. And one of the reasons I wanted to be public about it was also to market myself. So, I mean, another challenge that I think I've had compared to some lawyers of Colorado or something, for example, or or even big firms that are starting to dip their toe in it is that 
law firms often pay for people to learn and go to conferences and all that kind of stuff. Well, I never had a firm to pay for anything for me. So it was all up to me. And originally, like I mentioned, I wanted to start a wellness center. So I had started to read a bunch of business books and branding and marketing. And one of them that was very influential to me, I don't even know if I finished the book, it was called The Brand Called You. And essentially, it's like, be yourself. That's the most authentic way, is the best way. And it kind of gave some tips to bring out your authenticity. But as I was reading it, I was like, I don't need to do any of that. I'm already the way that I am. I can't be any other way. <laughs> so I'll just roll with it. You know, that's pretty good advice. And so I figured out, uh, you know, to, to get into these conferences, to, you know, to, to get known. I didn't have a, an, a firm paying for an ad or anything, but I figured out if I wrote an article, I could get in the program. If I landed a speaking gig, I could, I would be on the agenda. And so people would see my name that way and I could come to get exposure that way. And then that also led to a lot of newspaper interviews, you know, reporters calling me up and then getting published like that. So it's been built very slowly over time and very organically. And on one hand, I'm Sometimes I'm a little envious of the lawyers that, you know, get supported in, in what they're doing. Because this is fun work, too. I mean, it's challenging. It's intellectually fulfilling. And it's fun, you know. But it's been kind of a struggle for me. But at the same time, I, I'm proud of, you know, well, I did this all on my own without anybody's help. So that's kind of cool, too. And then I look forward to, with my own firm now, taking a more structured and intentional approach to marketing. And, you know, I just added some YouTube videos to my site and, you know, some other things. And I'm, you know, I'm one-on-one level on that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm interested to see where that will go. But, you know, it's it's definitely been a journey. <laughs> no, I appreciate you sharing uh, that because I think it's, for me too, my listeners know this, branding is so important to me. Like if there was you know, the overarching umbrella that is marketing, branding is where I find my zen, my happy place, and whether that is building a brand or you being the personal brand. Mm -hmm. um, so when you shared that book was really inspirational for you, I was like, yes, I love to hear that because I think that's the kind of insight and advice that I really appreciate my guests sharing because listeners, like that is the tea, like that's the magic sauce. Like everybody's always chasing how do I get there? You know, and I think there is relative <laughs> to what yeah. your goals are, your ambitions are, your skill set is. And I'm a really big believer in focusing on your strengths and not your weaknesses. Not that you shouldn't invest time in improving your weaknesses, but they're your weaknesses for a reason. You're not quite frankly good at them. So what are you good at? What are you, you know, capable of doing? And so I think you and I share a similar approach in maybe there's a little bit of discomfort in putting ourselves out there because we aren't sure what the outcome might be. But I mean, I'm already projecting, obviously. Yeah, it's like, definitely going out on a limb. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you know, now what? I mean, you've been in the industry from a cannabis professional longer than I have been, but from a Texas legalization, from a hemp perspective, we're really only, you know, a couple of years into this whole thing. And I already feel like I've, like not, I'm, I'm never there. I haven't arrived yet, but I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm a little bit on the other side where I can look at people who are entering the market and kind of give some sort of insight and wisdom into, well, this is how you navigate it. And it really takes people like yourself who are pioneering these conversations as 
tumultuous and uncomfortable and gray as they are. And I know you and I have had lots of great conversations. I'm like, Lisa, what does this new, you know, regulation mean? And it's like, well, let's look into it and let's see. It's like, in this case, I can defend it this way. And in that case, I can defend it this way and that way. And so it's, you know, just goes to show how exciting, I think, is more the feeling I'm going to resonate with than like fearful, because I think the fear is always going to be there. But to me, I also try to remind myself, and maybe you can appreciate this being a true legal professional, (laughs) you know, the laws, it's of the laws meant to be broken. But if you follow the law and the way that it is written, then there is never going to be any challenge or resistance. It's like sometimes you have to go beyond what the law says and test it. Again, unfortunate for the individuals who are the example of the law. But that's, I really believe, how we start to make change, especially what I've observed here in Texas. It's just like if we listen to the law explicit outright, then I don't think anybody would be in business. But because you have varying interpretations of the law, that's where you're getting into more of the creativity. And so maybe that's a good next question to kind of step into. What is currently Texas's cannabis law? What is it from a hemp perspective and what is it from a medical marijuana perspective? Because I know I talk some smack about Texas having a medical marijuana program, but we do. It's very immature. But before we were recording, you were enlightening me on actually some liberties that the statute has in regards to medical marijuana, which I just want to kind of get a baseline from you. What does cannabis look like legally regulatory in Texas presently in 2022? Okay. And this also kind of goes with what you were just saying about the conflicting, contradictory laws. I just wanted to touch on that, that it does involve a lot of strategy. And strategy is different for different clients because it depends on how much you're willing to push that envelope. Some are more willing. It depends on what the product is. It depends on how it's marketed because there's that tightrope between you want to get your brand out there and you want to get market share and you want the consumer to understand what the product is. But on the other hand, you don't want to paint a target on your back. It's a great. So, you know, I know we've discussed this. It's a risk tolerance business decision. You know, it's because if you follow to the T everything, you know, it it would be kind of onerous and we we wouldn't get anywhere. (laughs) So it does take businesses that are willing to pioneer these things, challenge these things like the lawsuits, you know, I I don't know. I don't believe that the lawsuits totally have merit, but they do have the effect of getting these injunctions and allowing people to continue doing business as Texas continues to try to clamp down on this stuff. So I'll get back, I'll get into the Texas law. You know, we got this very limited medical law passed in 2015. It's had very few ex- expansions since then. And some folks may know or not know that we don't have voter initiatives. We can only get new laws through the legislature, which only meets every two years. And there is a whole lot of politics involved in in everything, you know. And so, you know, we've got, you know, some of the basic conditions. Now it's all epilepsy. I mean, I remember being in Stephanie Click's office in the early days and saying, why can't my daughter benefit from this? Why is it only children who are dying from epilepsy? You know, and I got ridiculous response to that. But anyway, our our law, you know, we did get some pretty good improvements in 2021 to add cancer and PTSD 
without any limitations. I mean, you don't have to be a veteran. You don't have to be dying. They also made it much easier for physicians to participate. So originally it had to be, and I, I can't even say the word, pediatric neuroepidemiology. <laughs> Just, you know, you had to have two of them to concur that all other treatments have been ruled out. Brain surgery is ruled out. This is the last resort. So it's not that way anymore. You see one doctor doesn't need to have all those fancy credentials. In fact, we're kind of getting to a point where you just have a telehealth thing, you know, and it kind of like in other states, they've made it easier for patients to participate too, because they are allowing symptoms of PTSD, for example, depression, anxiety, or symptoms of cancer, you know, problems with that. And they also created a little research board to follow the patient's treatments, which I think will prop up a good medical program in 23. So what happened last session, though, was we were going to have 5% THC and chronic pain. So chronic pain is what gives a medical program viability. It's n- never really viable until you add that. And I remember Illinois, who's, you know, their state's gangbusters, but back in their early days, they were extremely limited. And in fact, a judge <laughs> ordered chronic pain to be added. And, and so then that opened it up into the program that it is today, you know. So what happened was it, it was politics. It wasn't really anti-marijuana in particular. But, you know, Lieutenant Dan Patrick, you know, would say, well, if you Democrats are going to do this to me over here, I'm going to take this away from you over there. And when specifically about marijuana. So that was a real bummer that we got chronic pain and and the increased THC taken away. But because they were almost willing to go there, I think they will go there in 23 and that'll be great. My earliest best case scenario for adult use would be 2025. And that depends on a lot of things like the critical mass of the legalized states around us, in particular the South, because Texas follows suit with the South. And then what happens in the presidential election is going to alter everything as well. And we know Governor Abbott wants to vote for president. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But back to our Texas law. So the conditions, the THC limit, okay, it's super restricted. We actually have a great back, backbone of a statute because it is unlimited. The statute says at least three licenses. So the governor came down and said, okay, you know, in the background, no more than three. So that, that's where that came from. And counties can't opt out. Cities can't opt out. No dry counties can't interfere. There's no residency requirement. There's no special treatment for anyone or any special kind of program you got to put together or anything like that. So in the future, it's going to be a really great program that, you know, it's really is going to be made the most politically connected and wealthy person win is how it's going to be. And that's kind of how it is everywhere. But I do think that without having the residence, no residency requirement, I think eliminates a little bit of cronyism. And we know that we're going to have every MSO in the country (laughs) trying to get in and apply because Texas is the prize. You know, California is big. Yeah, but it's mired in regulation, litigation and taxation. (laughs) Nobody really wants to be there. When Texas comes around, that's going to be great. And of course, we're going to have a booming industry, you know, the hemp law, you know. Well, let me stop you really quick. Sure. You think uh-huh. that the backbone of medical, two things I wanted to point out. Do you think the backbone of, backbone of medical won't 
get worse? Like, I'm just trying to understand kind of how policy works, especially knowing that, again, sometimes you submit a bill and the bill changes. I just am curious. It's like, okay, you guys said, you know, you weren't going to impose these limits, but could they then go back and retract and change things? Like, is that realistic? Is that probable? Kind of what's your take on that? And then two, I wanted to clarify for the listeners, while Texas has a medical program, it is very further limited, meaning because there's limited licensure, there's other strenuous stipulations around procuring and picking up medication. A couple things, it's a prescription, so we don't get reciprocity in other states. You have to go to the location to pick up your medicine. The alternative is they do offer delivery. Although I did just see Compassionate Today's News said they officially opened their Houston dispensary. So that gives them another outpost. But wanted to just clarify that because, again, I think when we say medical, we look at how Colorado was medical where, oh, pick and go to whatever dispensary is convenient to you, get your medicine. You want to go to California or Hawaii as a medical patient. Great. We count you. But I say this also, I don't think I've like shared too publicly, but I, I am a medical patient in Texas. I went through the process. I have PTSD qualifications from going through my car accident where I was hit by a vehicle as a pedestrian. And so grateful to, you know, kind of get to see the system for what it is. But oh my gosh, we just obviously we have so much more to go. And I know you know that. I just, my heart breaks for people who assume Texas's medical is equivalent to medical in like other states. And it's just frankly not. So yeah, wanted to make not, that point. Not give any, that. See if you had any thoughts to that, but then also just touch on the statute going backwards potentially if we inch towards yeah, our progress. Mean, of course, it could go backwards. They can change it uh, every session. But one thing that's interesting to know is that every session there's like 20 bills filed that get out legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana in some form or fashion. I referenced Stephanie Click out of Dallas. She is the author of the Texas Compassionate Use Act, and she has opposed expansion. I kind of think she may have a deal with the governor. Um, Politics? Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that any improvements to the law only come from the bills that she submits. So, for example, this session, this past session, there were a lot of wonderful bills, you know, that were that were submitted. And I was starting to go talk to all the all the folks that sponsored them and endorsed them. And then on the last data file, she boom dropped her bill, and of course, all the other ones fell by the wayside. So it's only going to be her uh, her bill. So. I think that, you know, the 21 session showing a willingness for chronic pain and increased THC and, you know, we'll have, like I said, we'll have more medical states, more adult use states, certainly a whole lot more pressure. I think that there was a poll that 60% of Texans want legalization, 83% want medical, you know, uh, so eventually, because when I talk to these folks at the Capitol, you know, the Republicans, that's who I focus on. They'll say, oh, Lisa, I'm for this personally, but I cannot cast a vote in favor of that because all they're worried about is the next election and they're scared of their constituency, the Tea Party, the right, you know, so that's that's where they're at. So we've got to demonstrate that the constituency and the public opinion is, is in this direction. Kind of a little interesting thing to note about the governor is that he has always said we are a law and order state and there will be no marijuana legalization on my watch. And 
this past round of, of running for governor, he had two challengers who were super far right and they were criticizing him for not being right enough. And one of them was Alan West, the chairman of the GRB. You know, this was pretty serious competition. And I think that's partly why he started to steer the state so far right, is to kind of fend off that whole constituency that thinks he's too soft, which is kind of funny to imagine anybody think he's soft. And I read a voter guide in March that asked all three of them, the three Republicans, about marijuana. Of course, the other two said hello, which is what Abbott always said. And this time he touted signing the Compassionate Use Act. He said he was open to whomever else it could help and that he didn't think that jails should be stocked with small time possession cases. So that, you know, that marked an improvement. Also, this last session was the first time that the legislature has ever held audience on cannabis and gambling as potential revenue source. Uh, Lieutenant uh, Governor Dan Patrick made some marijuana jokes. Um, so they are kind of starting to soften a little bit, believe it or not. And it's also going to take donations. So people and businesses that want to see legalization need to pony up more money in order for us to get it. And that's one reason we haven't gotten it, because there's been no donations for it. And to put it in perspective, the governor and lieutenant governor raked in $19 million last session just from the oil and gas industry. So you can see that Marijuana activists are not going to get their way until there is some money behind it, maybe a change in the messaging, you know. So there's a, there's a lot of things at play. And, you know, like I said, the backbone of our statute's great, you know, to build upon. I hope that we only get further expansion and not retraction. I would like to see a law actually that are to take out the conditions in THC limits from the statute and leave that to an agency, preferably held, <laughs> to to promulgate because regulations can get changed at any time. But the statute, that's the law law, that only gets to change every two years. So we're stuck with 1% THC for two, you know. But if that were in regulations, then, you know, after six months or eight months, that, that could be changed and we don't have to wait so long. And it really is a long period because we can take the original passage of the law as an example. Passed in 2015, not until the middle of 2017 did we get any, you know, the license applications, the regulations, totally drug their feet. So even when a law passes, it's still going to be another lag time before we see the benefit of the law. Except for those that already have a license because they'll be able to take advantage of the new law right away. And so that is the main motivating factor for the MSOs or anyone wanting to get a license now, even though it's a super limited program, they're probably going to lose money on. But when a law changes, boom, they've already got their doors open. So yeah, I can't imagine just from what I know about the operators in Texas, I think Compassionate just got, was it 40 million investment and I don't think they're profitable and they're building facilities. And so it's certainly the long play to kind of hold stake. But I think the, you know, kind of interesting duality to the scenario is just like you're kind of highlighting, you need money invested into the politics. Well, who has the money to invest? Okay, well, it's right. And right now, for those who don't know, Texas has three licenses, like you said, 
The third I, I know is owned, but it is not operating. I've heard murmurs they might open up operations soon, but the other two, one is compassionate. They are a Texas-based business. The other is uh, Good Blends, aka Sorterra, aka Parallel, which is a multi-state operator. So you can already see multi-state operators in the space operating. And so my fear as a business owner and as a cannabis professional who is tracking these things from a legal perspective is just like, okay, well, if they have the money, they're going to influence policy to make it benefit them. And that's my fear is it's not going to actually be policy that benefits the small business owners who are also helping shape the cannabis industry in Texas, which transitioning into then hemp. Hemp was legalized in Texas in June of 2019. And what all went into that legalization? Kind of how did that get, I guess, designated or decreed? I mean, obviously it fell right after the federal hemp bill or the, I should say the federal bill that legalized hemp at a federal level. But from my understanding, Texas's bill mimics the farm bill. At the same time, we do have different regulations that are in place through our governing body, which is the Department of State Health Services. And currently hemp sits under the ag function in the state versus I'd be curious, like, where should it sit? Maybe it's a good question, too. So kind of what is hemp in Texas right now? Yeah, so what went into it, Commissioner Miller has always been in favor of it. But similarly to, I don't understand why Texans were so independent and we want to secede, but yet we follow better law. We're so, kind of weird in that regard, I, know. I have so to admit. They wouldn't do the, you know, the pilot program because it wasn't federally legal yet. But there was always interest to get it going. And then, as I mentioned, you know, I was, I was working um, with the legislature um, and it was education. You know, I put together PowerPoints and other literature and, um, you know, I would just speak with all of them. And it was very common. I got two responses from everyone. Um, one is, ain't that just your stepping stone to marijuana? <laughs> and the other one was, well, what's to prevent Billy Bob from planting a marijuana patch in his hemp field? So I'd have to explain why that wouldn't happen. So it was was a lot of education, you know. I mean, it's still, if you're not in our little cannabis bubble, folks don't really know what hemp is or understand or this little distinction of the THC percentage. And so there was a lot, a lot, a lot of education that had to be done there. That is one reason why smokable hemp was banned because it mimicked marijuana too much. And, it, you know, that Texas not ready yet to let people smoke weed. <laughs> you know, and so the focus in getting this bill passed also was the industrial uses. You know, that's what we were talking about. Industrial and CBD. No one's going to get high off this rope. It's not dope. <laughs> and so you can imagine I'm kind of head in my hands now that I promised it wouldn't be used this way. And now all <laughs> the controversy over all of the psychoactive cannabinoids that are being developed. And it's very, it's very interesting, but there wasn't a whole lot of resistance, really. I mean, I really just wanted to make sure that this was separated from marijuana and that cartels could not use this as a front for marijuana operations. That was a big concern. So that that's how that got done. Um, Texas also works a lot with the USDA and they've got a real good relationship. And then you have Texas being number one for agriculture in the land. I mean, California might be a smidge ahead, but that's because they got the wine country. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, we're international exporter. So anyway, 
I guess a follow-up to that a little bit is we saw hemp legalized. And to your point and to my experience as a as a retailer who's navigating this, we launched with just oils, just CBD oils, no THC. We were doing isolate. And then I remember the introduction of hemp. And I think I was sharing it earlier. You know, it looks and smells like marijuana. And so I was even cautious as a retailer. At that point, though, I mean, even the licensing from dishes was a little murky. Like to your point earlier, too, they legalized it, but then the program to actually regulate it didn't quite come until some time later. So we were all kind of operating, being like, I don't know, this is legal. <laughs> like, what can I do? What can I not do? What should I say? So there was obviously a lot of self-regulation, which I think is reflected across the industry at a national level. But certainly in Texas, you're kind of going through the, oh my God, what is happening? And then flour comes on the market. Then the smokable hemp ban goes in place pretty immediately, I feel. Like I'm trying to think timeline. It must have been maybe not even like five or six months into hemp's legalization in Texas that the smokable hemp ban got put in place. I remember the panic of, oh my God, I can't sell smokables going through the ringer of, okay, well, if I just take non-smokable off my packaging, is that permissible and you know defendable in court? Okay, well, if I sell a pre-roll, it clearly has a filter on it. That's for smokable intent. But if I sell loose flour, is that permissible? Or if I sell you a t-shirt and it's rolled up with an eight, is that legal? Because it was a gift. And just going through everything that I think you know, other states have in some degree experienced the creativity around, you know, the interpretation of the law. And then, mm -hmm. of course, there were the lawsuits. So now the smokable hemp ban has been kicked back and forth. Gosh, a couple of times, I think last I heard of it is in the Supreme Court. That's and so right. it's presently in the Supreme Court. What is kind of the most recent update with that? What are we waiting for? What should we expect to wait for? My assumption is they're going to keep kicking the can down the road until we get to next year's legislative session and then they can deal with it in in the statute. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. Well, the oral arguments were in March, so we would expect to get a decision this summer. They can't, I think they have to issue some kind of a decision. So it's not like they can just punt it to the legislature um, unless that was their decision. This is, this is something for the legislature to change, you know, but I think in this case, people should be aware that the successes to date have come out of the Austin District Court and the Austin Court of Appeals, which are the most liberal <laughs> in the state. Um, and then when you get to the Supreme Court, that is 150% Republican and they are, you know, they're going to be pro-state. You know, and a big state argument was the police interest in discerning between hemp and marijuana, marijuana still being very illegal. And so they do have a a police interest in that. They have asserted some public health and safety 
arguments that I think are valid. And one reason that's an issue, though, is because in session, they were so sure that by banning the manufacture and production of smokable hemp, it would thereby prevent the sale of it because that really was their intent. They weren't thinking about the internet or <laughs> all these other things. You know, hemp is just new to them, you know, and to them it's marijuana junior. So that's something to keep in mind as well, you know, to, to keep in mind that what's gone on today is, you know, we've got the statute that prevents the manufacture and processing of hemp for smoking and the dishes rule that extended that to re retail sale as well. Dishes has to come up with rules enacting the statute. And of course, they can't go over those bounds beyond what the statute says. But this provision of the manufacture and production of hemp is under a heading that includes the word sale. So to me, it's not really outside the bounds. And given the legislative intent, and the public safety arguments and so forth, I don't think they really exceeded their authority, although it is a good argument to make because it's arguable. Um, in the third court of appeals, as you know, held that the manufacture and sale was valid in the statute and just held up the uh, retail sale by injunction until this is determined by the Supreme Court. Now, regardless of what the Supreme Court says, I fully expect this to become an issue in the next session anyway. Whether they ban it, whether they put some, put some strictures around it, that's another problem with the health and safety argument and why it's kind of good is that there's no age limits. There's no testing requirements. There's nothing like that because, again, they were so sure that they had nipped this in the bud by not allowing the manufacture of it. So... We'll just see. I would expect the Supreme Court to side with the state. And all along, I've kind of thought that the state is right. But of course, we champion these these arguments and the efforts made, which have at least resulted in the businesses in Texas to continue to be able to sell smokable hemp, which, as we know, is it's very popular and it, it really sustains a lot of people's businesses. So that's... That's my take on, on the smokable hemp. Yeah, I appreciate that because it is so confusing as a business owner navigating it, let alone the consumers who we have to educate slash they don't really understand why products are being pulled from shelves or put on shelves and what they can and can't purchase. And so trying to relive that information to them as a business who's, you know, marketing and educating these products is such a headache. And then I think the the hurt that a lot of us felt was what you just, you know, reiterated, which was their, I guess, kind of slicing of manufacturing versus retail and selling. And then, yeah, they weren't really realizing, okay, well, people can buy it online. And so there was like a brief moment where we could sell it, but we couldn't manufacture it as things are going back and forth. And you're like, wait, so as long as I get these products from out of the state, that's okay. And then it obviously impacts the economy of our hemp industry here locally in Texas. And so I am curious if they will actually address it. I mean, obviously they have to, to some extent, because they it's in the Supreme Court, there has to be some update, but I think it's been fascinating realizing and watching obviously locally, how politics is playing out in this particular case, because it's been going on 
back and forth for the past two plus years and still no resolution. So I appreciate your take on it and look forward to seeing, you know, kind of what the next step is with this. Now to transition a little bit into... Well, hold on. I mean, I just wanted to say this is a prime example in real time of sloppy, poor legislative writing, which happens a lot because we've got these senators or what have you that have another day job and they have no idea about things that are medical, things that are hemp, things that are, I mean, they don't know. So they're trying to address certain concerns. In this case, it was the outcry over legalizing marijuana junior. And this is kind of where the attorneys can get in there and try to affect some change when the language was as sloppy as it was. <laughs> no, that's a great point to bring up because I do think that when we're watching these bills get passed or brought at least to, um, you know, be be reviewed and voted on. Ultimately, the language is obviously what is the contingency point. It's the interpretation from a legal perspective. What does the law actually say? And when you're looking at the language, sometimes, I mean, I think there's been a lot of instances, especially here in Texas, relating to the farm bill or hemp bill. It's like, okay, well, what does it mean when it says, you know, these psychoactive cannabinoids or less than 0.3 on a dry weight basis, which I definitely want to get into and briefly touch on these. I'm going to call them, you know, not necessarily minor cannabinoids, but these alternative, you know, loopholes to THCs realistically is kind of what I think is happening, Mm -hmm. especially with hemp drive Delta 9. But before we get there, probably want to interject about Delta 8, which could fit in that same category as being, quote unquote, a synthesized cannabinoid. It's very popular here in Texas. I'm bringing it up for the listeners who may be not as familiar with what's going on here in Texas to understand. In addition to the smokable hemp ban, which obviously is a broad umbrella for anything smokable, I think there's an aspect of that which touches on Delta 8 because a lot of Delta 8 products are vape products and smokable products where it's being sprayed onto hemp flour and sold here in the state. But it's a very popular cannabinoid. And I think because of the language of how both the Farm Bill and Texas's Hemp Bill were written, it left the door open for other psychoactive cannabinoids that were not Delta 9 THC. And so now you saw Delta 8 come into the market. I think there's, you know, a lot of opinion on Delta 8 because of how it's manufactured and because the word synthesis and synthetics are getting thrown in there. And if you guys are curious about Delta 8, I have other episodes that are with chemists and very specific on actually Delta 8 and synthetics and synthesizing and all those things. But from a legal perspective, we had Delta 8 be brought up in a very similar manner in terms of the state tried to outlaw it. Then we had some companies sue the state and then it's been back and forth in litigation and most recently was kicked to the Supreme Court. But then it got kicked back to the appellate court, if I'm not mistaken. And so we're still dealing with that particular cannabinoid. I don't know if that case deals with anything other than Delta 8 or if you can highlight what specifically was the issue with Delta 8. But that obviously being a cannabinoid that is psychoactive and available for all intents and purpose here in Texas and very popular because it's clear that Texans want to have access to psychoactive cannabinoids and the state is obviously trying to stop it like you've been sharing you know yeah. their perception and perspective is is very strong anti-cannabis unfortunately yeah and as you point out everything turns on these words and so it's it's interesting, you know, you watch these different states try to come up with some laws. And I've been involved in helping to advise some other states on what language to use 
and not use, you know, on behalf of some clients that are selling these psychoactive products and, you know, whether it's psychoactive or intoxicating, you know, there's the, all these different words matter. What does synthetic mean? And I've done a lot of research on that. And I think that it basically refers to things that are entirely man-made in a lab, you know, like K2 or spice. The difference with Delta-8 is that it is naturally occurring in the plant a tiny bit. And, you know, so it's got that going for it. And then, you know, you've got HHC and THCO and some of these, when they get farther away from the plant and become more and more of a man-made synthetic, that's when it starts to get more tenuous, whether this is a derivative of, of hemp or not. And the issue in Texas, and just for, you know, the readers to understand, we've got the federal hemp law and a federal controlled substances act, which defines marijuana and takes hemp out of it as defined by the farm bill. And each state also has its own hemp law and its own controlled substances act. And the Controlled Substances Act can be more strict in a state if they want it to be. And so that's how this all came to be. So in that August 2020 interim final rule that the DEA put out conforming the Controlled Substances Act to the fact that the Farm Bill happened and removing hemp from the definition of marijuana, they also made a mention of synthetics in there. And, you know, there was a big uproar about that. And anyway, each state, when something like that is done by the DEA, they can accept it or they can object to it and do what they want. So that's what our Health and Human Services Commissioner did. He objected to it. He filed that. He filed it in the Texas Register. Um, there was no comment. Nobody knew about it. Um, and then what he did was in January of last year, was he proposed a new definition of THCs. And the new definition is like the inverse of the definition of hemp. So instead of everything that comes from hemp is legal, this was all THCs are illegal except for Delta 9 with less than 0.3% THC. And every state, as I mentioned, has its own Controlled Substances Act and so in a lot of the bulk of the states that are considered to be illegal for Delta 8, it's really because of their Controlled Substances Act, just like this issue in Texas. It's really only been in the past six or nine months that states have started to take some action to specifically outlaw these other isomers. So the issue in the case in Texas is solely whether the Health and Human Services Commissioner properly followed the Administrative Procedure Act and the notice and comment um, requirements in order to change a law. And so the lawsuit is challenging that and saying that he did not dot all of his I's and cross all of his T's. Personally, I don't know. I mean, I think that definitely he followed it 80%. You know, maybe he's got to follow it 100% though. So maybe the lawyers on this case have found some other little thing that he didn't do. And I, th I think Andrea Steele had pointed out a couple of those little things to me. So that is what is, you know, that's what the court's going to have to decide. So it really has nothing to do whether Delta 8 is good or bad. It's just, did he properly change this? Now we are going to come up to the session pretty shortly. And in November, there will start to be the pre-filing of bills and a guarantee that there's going to be a lot of action on hemp. And um, 
that there will also be efforts to try to better craft exclusions to these things in, in the hemp law. And so we'll, we'll just see that's going to come down to lobbying and, and politics in session as it pertains to Delta 8 and, and some of these other things. Yeah, you brought up so many good things to highlight. One, I think, did the FDA not recently come out and give their update on Delta 8 at a federal level? I think they did. There were a couple of, I guess, warning letters that were sent out to people. And it I guess the community's assumption was, oh, look, Delta 8 is bad. They're cracking down on it. And really, it was about their marketing claims, and it wasn't actually about the efficacy of Delta 8. So I think in a similar manner, these arguments are not as Delta 8 good or bad. It's these, you know, ancillary things that are supporting the marketing or the filing of these these bills or these, you know, updates to regulations. And so I don't know if that will impact things at a state level, because obviously the states can't have their own independent laws. I know other, at least it's probably like what, at least five or six states I know of that have gone ahead and outlawed Delta 8. But then you brought up things like HHC and getting into these chemically derived cannabinoids, which if you guys are curious about HHC, I just released an episode a couple of weeks ago with Colorado Chromatography and we got all into HHC. But that conversation really further opened up this conversation around chemically derived cannabinoids. And I think you're seeing that in Delta 8. HHC, but now also the introduction of hemp-derived Delta-9. So because of the way that the farm bill was written, it allowed for up to 0.3% Delta-9 THC on a dry weight basis. So I love explaining this to people in regulated markets because they're like, wait, what? You can do what? And they're catching on because it's obviously going really um, viral nationwide. I mean, I see tons of brands, you know, latching onto this loophole essentially that has been created. And customers are like, well, why did we not have these products, you know, like a year ago? And I'm like, well, because we were dealing with Delta 8. And so I think people on the maybe, let's say, manufacturing, brand, retail side are getting creative to interpret these laws um, how they can. And so that's where you're seeing this interpretation of dry weight basis, allowing 4.3% of it to be Delta 9 THC. I think there is some murkiness around where it's derived. And certainly the chemically, you know, created conversation adds more fuel to this fire that is burning. But you know, like there's so many points that I would love your perspective and insight on. But the final thing I'll kind of, you know, highlight and sum up is you now have hemp derived Delta 9 hitting the market pretty much exclusively in edibles. But contrast that with Texas's medical marijuana, which only allows for 1% THC. So they're really limited to only edibles as well. We now are both selling THC edibles. And we're still looking towards legalization at a state level, at a federal level. But now you have this whole market of Delta 9 THC straight to people's doors across the United States, sold directly to consumers without medical prescriptions here in the state. To me, we already kind of have a version of legalization. But I know just from the people that I've been talking to in the state, out of the state, Obviously, if you sell regulated marijuana in a state like Colorado, you are not happy about this. And so I believe states are going to start to deal with this as well as at a federal level, which not only does Texas have their legislative session next year in 2023, but I also believe that the farm bill is up for amendment as well next year. So my take is this is a short-lived 
experience for all of us to have access to these chemically derived cannabinoids, as well as hemp derived Delta 9 in the current stage. But how it gets dealt with, I don't know. I've heard that they're going to, you know, do almost like a liquor store versus convenience store model. But how do you slice and dice these cannabinoids? How do you really tell? Scientifically, if this is from marijuana, if this is from hemp, if this is chemically made, everybody I've talked to right now has kind of expressed you realistically can't tell. So I've been kind of, you know, believing that a lot of, let's say, illicit Delta 9 is going to get slapped with a hemp sticker and shipped straight across state lines and straight to your doors. And so it's just it's a big elephant in the room that I am trying to wrangle and understand. And I'm sure you have not been, you know, shy from paying attention to this. It's it's again, it's like the elephant in the room. Everybody's just kind of like, what the hell is going to go on with it? But I'm curious kind of your take on how that's going to affect Texas's legalization as well as federal legalization and maybe how it might get addressed based on language or, you know, regulation after the fact or go into actual statutes. So that's a hot take though. So here is the elephant in the room that no one's really talking about much yet. So let's but talk about it. The previous elephant in the room though, I just wanted to touch on about Delta 8 and you mentioned the FDA and, and some things like that. The FDA and the CDC both put out warnings about Delta 8 products and What's kind of striking or to me were a couple of things. One was that there were a lot of complaints from adults who thought they were just taking regular hemp and didn't realize that this was something different, that this was something psychoactive, which I can imagine, you know, I mean, the, we're in our little cannabis bubble, so we know everything about everything, but the regular person knows nothing about hemp or, or these products, as I'm sure you know, you probably have to educate them and in, in the, but people who come into your shop are curious, you know, someone might have just been handed this by a friend or something. All and the other, yeah. And then the other thing that was striking was the, the kids are getting, you know, a lot of the calls were about kids because the things they look like candy to younger kids and to teenagers, it looks like real marijuana. <laughs> so that was also kind of a negative, you know, in addition to the warning letters, which yeah, were more about the marketing and saying that it cures cancer and things like that. But there were some positive things that have come out about the legality of Delta-8 that I just wanted to mention. As you were probably aware, the DEA has stated several times, once in Alabama and once in Florida, that it believes that Delta-8 derived from hemp is legal. And additionally, um, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers the West Coast, came out with a great decision holding that they believe Delta 8 is legal as well and that it's up to Congress to change the language of the Farm Bill if they disagree. And the issue in that case, it was a fight over stealing or infringing on a copyright or a trademark, I mean, of a Delta 8 company, <laughs> you know, and so they were reviewing this, you know, in federal court and because it's a federal trademark and they were, they held that, yep, they can have their trademark because it's, this is federally legal. So that was, that was pretty interesting. So there has been a little bit of positive movement and another bit of positive movement was also the DEA coming out and saying that the source or the origin 
of it doesn't really matter. Like if you take seeds, for example, they don't yet express THC. And if those seeds are under 0.3, which they will be, then they're hemp, even if they're going to grow into marijuana later. So that was a great decision because also, you know, we were talking about the making of Delta 8 or Delta 9 products. There is a legal way to do it. And then there is an illegal way to do it. So Delta 8 is really only legal if it is made from the synthesis of hemp CBD. But there are plenty of manufacturers out there who are just pumping out this stuff in huge volumes to meet the demand and they don't care what's in there. And they might spike it with what's called mother liquor or, you know, or hot hemp or spent hemp waste or what have you. And so to me, those products were inherently illegal because then they're marijuana derived Delta 8. It's no longer hemp derived. And we know that marijuana derived hemp is schedule one controlled substance. So that kind of makes an interesting twist. And as well as for the Delta 9. So um, you'd ask about the Delta 9. Yeah, that is just catching on like wildfire. And yeah, the marijuana industry is lobbying hard against it because hemp companies can go out and sell this like gangbusters and they don't have the 280E problems. They don't have the regulation and taxation problems. And the Delta 9 sellers are laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> so, you know, it, and, and I, I love the Delta 8 products. I, I think they're great. I mean, they're just like just the right amount. Delta 8's never did me right. But the Delta 8, and it, I mean, the Delta 9 is really nice. And again, that needs to be made in a, a, a very conscientious and scrupulous way. And it is going to come under high scrutiny because... Although it tests under 0.3, therefore it's legal under the statute. I mean, it's marijuana. <laughs> it's a 20, 25 milligram dose of THC. So at some point, someone's going to get arrested or they're going to go to a head shop or something and test the products. And I don't know, it's going to be an I do agree that it's it's got to be a legislative fix. I mean, this is the way it was written. Kind of just like the smokable hemp in Texas, you know, they thought that they got it right, but through sloppy drafting, they didn't. And when they created the Farm Bill, there wasn't any kind of knowledge yet at that time by the people drafting the legislation that there was anything else out there other than industrial hemp and CBD, which was therapeutic, emphasized, non-psychoactive that's the only way we could get the hemp law passed either. And it was championed by Republican uh, Senate leader Mitch McConnell. So, you know, this was all on the premise, both federally and Texas, that it wouldn't be something to get high off of. Um, and of course, the chemists got busy and figuring out what all, you know, can be done. But, you know, the things that the DEA has said recently make it sound to me like a lot of these isomers and so forth are legal. I mean, the the federal definition says derivatives, isomers, etc. Uh, so you know, and like and, you know, and as explained, you know, states can take more restrictive approaches if they want. But at the federal level, this is where we're at in Texas. This is where we're at. So it will be very interesting. Definitely in a 2023 session, there's going to be hard fights about this stuff. 
last session, stuff hadn't really come up, bubbled up to the surface yet. You know, Delta ate a little bit, but not that much. You know, now it's, now we've got several large elephants in the room. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadaturabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadaturabi.com. 